So right now we are starting a new chapter, and that's chapter 30. Chapter 30 is a profound treatment of the concept of humility. When you study this chapter, you come to understand how it is such a basic in Chabad philosophy that one of the hallmarks of a great chassid is somebody who is truly, truly humble. If somebody is a chassid for real, they must be humble. There's no other way. It's so embedded in this way of thought. Where does this chapter come in? Actually, this chapter was added by the Alter Rebbe prior to printing. It was not in the original manuscripts. There were two chapters that he added right before printing. One of them was this chapter and the other one is chapter 32. This chapter comes as a continuation of chapter 29, where we started to deal with the spiritual condition of Timtum Halev, a dull heart, where the mind understands the person is meditating, but their heart is not responding. And the altar of said the reason for that is because the Sitra Akhra is crusting their divine soul. It has the tremendous chutzpah of not allowing the light of a divine soul to shine within the heart. So it's not because the person isn't trying hard enough, it's because there's a blockage. And how do we remove the blockage? We remove the blockage by crushing the Sitra Akhra. And while that sounds simple enough, the problem is it becomes very personal. Because we identify with the animal mindset on an everyday basis, we are so deeply identified with it that we come to be on an everyday conscious level as though we are the animal soul itself. And so in order to crush the animal soul, we end up having to crush our own heart. Some of the meditations in last chapter was, just look how distant you are from Hashem. The fact that you can desire something that is against his will puts you even further away from him than the unclean animals. Or consider the sins of your youth. You did something at some point in life that put a separation between you and Hashem. These were all to bring us to a profound state of humility. But this chapter takes it to another level. Why? Because you might say, true, I did all the meditations in last chapter, and now I understand that I am so lowly, so distant from Hashem. But that other guy is also so lowly and so distant from Hashem. And not just that, he's worse. So I am superior to him. So in order to deal with this untrue way of seeing things, the author wrote this chapter. Very, very interesting ideas over here. I'm going to start with the story of the famous Hasidic master, Rabbi Zosha of Anapoli. In the same town as him, he was known to be very, very humble. He was a colleague of the Alter Rebbe. He signs his name, Hakatan, the small one, of Mishulam Zusha. So anyway, in the same town as him lived a very self-important Torah scholar. And the two of them just were constantly exuding different moods. Rabbi Zusha walked around always so happy with a smile on his face, calm. And the other man was always sour and angry and mad at everybody. And one night he decided, I'm getting to the bottom of this. Why is it that Rabzusha, who lives a life of poverty, who has health problems, is always so happy? And me, who lives a life of privilege and dignity, I'm always in a bad mood. I have to find out what his secret is. 
So he creeps out of his bed in the middle of the night and he goes to Rav Zusha's hovel and sure enough he's up studying Torah and he knocks on the door, Rav Zusha lets him in graciously with a big smile, welcome, what brings you here? And he said, I need to get to the bottom of this. Why are you always so happy? Well, I am always so miserable. So he said, hmm, let's look at the recent wedding that was in town. The wedding of the famous philanthropist Rab Misha when he married off his daughter. So let's say it happened that the messenger went to personally invite the VIPs in town and one of the VIPs in town is you. When he came to your house and he knocked at the door, you demanded to see the guest list and you were horrified to see that you were number 14 on that list. You were in such a bad mood. And then the day of the wedding came and you thought it's beneath my dignity to come on time. So you came late, and by the time you showed up at the wedding, there was no room for you at the head table. So you had to sit somewhere else. And then the people at the head table got a special gift when the wedding was over. But you weren't at the head table, so you didn't get that privilege. By the time you left the wedding, you were broken. You were mad. You were angry at everybody, even the chassan and kala, the bride and groom. And then let's look at Zusha. He never called himself I, but just to make the story easier to say, I will say I. I get a knock at the door and it's the messenger from Reb Misha, the philanthropist. What? He wants to invite me to his daughter's wedding? Why? I am so happy. Why would he invite me to his daughter's wedding? This is really special. I feel so privileged. And then the day of the wedding comes. He invited me. It's only right I should come on time. I mean... Why would he invite me? So I come to the wedding. I'm there at time. And what do you know? He puts me at the head table. At the head table? Oh my goodness. I can't believe it. So you can imagine that when I left that wedding, I was happy and I was in a good mood. And when you left the wedding, you were sour and miserable because you expected everything and you ended up with nothing. And this reminds me of one more story from the Tzemach Tzedek, the altar of his grandson. A student complained to him. He said, you know, I can't stand it. Everybody at the base medrash steps all over me. And he said, well, when you spread yourself all over the floor, they cannot walk anywhere except for on you. So humility sounds like it's very difficult. And indeed, it is very difficult. But consider the, consider the alternative. Somebody who is in a state of true humility is somebody who is in a state of true joy. And somebody who is egocentric will always have a reason to be sad and angry. So chapter 30. In chapter 29, the Alter Rebbe discussed various means of overcoming timtum halev, the state of insensitivity in, when, in which one's heart is dull and unresponsive to his contemplation of Hashem's greatness. All these methods are aimed at crushing one's spirit, whereby one crushes the cause of Timsum Halev, the arrogance of the Sitra Akhara of the animal soul. In chapter 30, the Alter Rebbe continues this discussion by outlining another method of dealing with this problem. So here's the other method. One who suffers from Timsum Halev must also set his heart. To fulfill the instruction of our sages, be lowly of spirit before every man. So in Perkei Aves, we have this instruction from our sages. Be lowly of spirit before every man. 
Just these few words can be analyzed so deeply. Now, a number of commentators have noted a difficulty in this Mishnaic dictum. For the Hebrew language distinguishes between two types of humility. The first is a feeling of inferiority in comparison with others. The second is the absence of self-glorification even while recognizing one's superiority. The thought that his superior qualities are a God-given gift and that another man similarly endowed might have in fact invested them to better advantage. So we're speaking about two different kinds of humility. The former type of humility is called shiflos, literally lowliness, lowliness, and the latter anivos, humility. So one is really feel low, shiflos. The other one is you recognize your gifts, but you realize that they are a gift from Hashem. And if you think that if Hashem would have given those gifts to somebody else, they most probably would have done a better job. The Mishnah uses the term shiflos, lowliness. Since the Mishnah employs the adjective shval ruach, it is explicitly advocating the former type of humility. And here the difficulty arises. Why should one regard oneself as being lowlier than, lowlier than every man, lowlier even than the lowliest sinner? In fact, in early editions of Tanya, the Altarba writes, even if you've seen him transgress severe transgressions. So we're speaking about being humble before every person, even a great sinner that you yourself witness that he sins. You know he's a bad guy. Because of this difficulty, some commentators interpret the Mishnah as saying, conduct yourself self-effacingly toward every man, meaning treat every man with deference as though he were superior to you. Okay, so there's difficulty with this Mishnah. Because of that, a lot of the commentators say it means that you should behave with great humility. Yes, you know that you're better than him. You know you're spiritually more developed. You're a kinder person. You're more generous. You have better manners. You're a greater Torah scholar. And he is lacking in almost every which area in life. Nevertheless, conduct yourself with true humility, even though you are truly superior, as you know yourself. The Alter Rebbe rejects this interpretation. He's looking at the words of the sages and he says, that's not what they meant. He says like this, The wording implies be thus and do not merely act thus in all sincerity. They could have said, humble your spirit before every man. Act humbly before every man. That's not what they said. They said, be truly humble in all sincerity, in the truth of truths. This is not a game, this is not a show, it's not a facade. Truly and sincerely within your heart of hearts, be humble before every person. And you should know, by the way, that the terminology used in the Mishnah is Bifne Kal Ha'adam. Kal Ha'adam means every single human being, not just Jewish people, but all of humanity. When the Torah uses the term Ha'adam, it means all of humanity, Rabbi Meir says this in the Talmud, and he brings proof from the Pasuk that says, Asher Actually, over there, Rabbi Meir says that a non-Jewish person who studies Torah deserves to be treated as respectfully as the high priest. And he brings this Pasuk for proof that it means that a non-Jewish person studying Torah. Again, what does it mean a non-Jewish person studying Torah? There's discussion. It means either what they have to do, the seven Noahide laws, 
because some opinions are that they should not be studying Torah. Other opinions are, no, they can study all of the Torah as long as it's for the pursuit of coming close to Hashem. If it's an intellectual or an academic pursuit, they are not allowed to. But if it's for coming close to Hashem, yes, they should study Torah and they should be honored for studying the Torah. So here, and when it says just plain Adam, that means the Jewish people. The Navi says, You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. And the Talmud says, Rabbi Shemar Yochai says, You specifically, Jewish people, are called Adam. So when it says just plain Adam, it means Jewish people. When it says Ha-Adam, it means all of humanity. And here we're saying that you truly have to be humble before every other person. And that means even a very great person needs to feel utterly lowly before a great sinner. Now, how are we going to define who is great and who is lowly? Well, we're going to use the most truthful measuring stick, and that is how attached the person is to Hashem. So somebody who is truly attached to Hashem is somebody who, yes, studies Torah as much as he could, performs the mitzvahs as best as he can, but it pervades every aspect of his personality, including the way he deals with other people. This is a person who is a star in kindness, in generosity, in sensitivity, and caring, a truly well-developed spiritual person. And then he looks at a person who is a low-down sinner, unfaithful, unkind, stealing, cheating, and he needs to feel lowlier than him. This is, this is huge. What is this supposed to mean? In the presence of every man, even in the presence of the most worthless of worthless men, Kal Shebekalim. So this is the translation that they choose to write over here, worthless of worthless. Kal Shebekalim, I think, could also be translated really as, it means light, so irreverent. The most careless of the careless people. Extremely irreverent. irreverent the most heinous sinner, okay? This great person has to feel so humble before the most heinous sinner. Now, our Chachamim were men of truth. They were not saying, put up a show. They meant genuinely, inside, you need to feel so deeply humble. Having rejected this interpretation, however, we remain with the original difficulty. How is one expected to regard himself as being lowlier than the lowliest sinner? In answer, the Alter Rebbe states that the introspective Benoni will find that he often fails to wage war against his evil inclination to the same extent as the sinner is required to wage war against his desires. Although the lapses of the Benoni may be in seemingly inconsequential matters, they are more reprehensible than the lowly sinner's transgressions. Thus, even the Benoni, whose observance of Torah and mitzvahs is impeccable, can indeed regard himself as being lowlier than every man, as the Alter Rebbe now goes on to say. So I'm not going to explain this little paragraph because it's going to be spoken out clearly in the continuation of the chapter. So first of all, to clarify, Halacha dictates the way a person is supposed to behave, including the way a Torah scholar is supposed to behave. Halacha dictates the behavior of a Torah scholar. And a Torah scholar is not allowed to degrade himself in front of common people. If he has to act with dignity, he cannot degrade himself. There are certain behaviors he may not engage in because they are degrading for a Torah scholar. This doesn't contradict what we're saying here. He needs to behave in that kind of way in deference to the Torah, in deference to what he represents. 
his external behavior has to be in a manner of dignity, of a man apart in a, to a certain extent. But his internal feeling of who he genuinely is has to reflect true humility even to the lowliest sinner. Now, the explanation of the Alter Rebbe is going to come in stages. First, he's going to describe how we cannot judge the lowliest sinner. And then he's going to say, knowing what we know now, we can come to realize that we are just on the same level as him when it comes to our level of devotion to Hashem. And finally, in the last stretch of the chapter, he's going to say, actually, we're even worse off than him. So starting with stage one, we cannot judge. You could never judge. How are we going to fulfill this dictum of the sages just to hold ourselves humble before every person by following what they told us? V'hainu al pi this can be accomplished by following the instruction of our sages. Judge not your fellow man until you have stood, placed yourself in his place. So the Bartanura commentary on the Mishnah says, until you come to face the same test as him and have withstood it, you may not judge him. Don't judge your fellow until you're in his place. There's two kinds of places that we're going to talk about. There's his physical place, and his spiritual place. For it is literally his place, his physical environment that causes him to sin. Since his livelihood requires him to go about the marketplace all day. So look at this fellow. You can't judge him because the whole day he is an unwholesome, unkosher, unhealthy environment. His livelihood forces him to be in the marketplace where the, the sights, the temptations are everywhere. Because he is exposed here every single day, his place causes him to sin. Now, this just underscores how much importance Jewish thought and Jewish law gives to environment. Environment is huge. The Rambam in Hilchis Deis, The Laws of Character Development, says that a person must choose to live among good people. If he doesn't know of any place where society is actually good, every place that he knows of society is corrupt, okay, live where you are, but isolate yourself. And if the people in your town are so bad that they're forcing you to mingle with them, then you need to live in the caves and the deserts, in the thickets, because people are so profoundly affected with the people that they hang out with. I mean, this is proven. There are the famous experiments by Solomon Ash, the social psychologist who conducted experiments between the year 1951 and 1956. And he wanted to see how people respond to peer pressure. And he did a vision test. So he was showing lines. This line is bigger than this line. The lines were so simple. The questions were so simple that 95% of the people who took this test got the answers all correct. So 95% of the people got 100%. Okay, then he does the same questions, but he puts the people in a different kind of setting. There are nine actors and one subject, and the subject is always called to answer like number eight. And he would say, which line is bigger, this tiny line or this huge line? And the actors would get up and say, that tiny line. Of course, they didn't use the word tiny, but because I'm not showing visuals. This, they would point to the smaller line and say it was the bigger line. 
again and again, number one, number two, number three, number four, when it got to his turn, a lot of times the subject would answer the ridiculous answer that everybody else was answering. The number of all correct answers jumped from, instead of 95% of the people getting the answers all correct, 25% of the people got the answers all correct. That means a staggering 75% of the people were answering ridiculously wrong answers due to social pressure. Environment is so major. We must always expose ourselves only to a holy environment. In fact, Rabbi Yechanan ben Zakkai, one of the greatest teachers of the Jewish people, had five outstanding students. And he enumerated their praise. One of them, he said, he's like a cemented cistern that never loses a drop. Another one, he called him somebody who fears sin. Another one, he said, he's like an overpowering spring. About the great sage, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, he said, Ashrei Yailaratai, praised is she who bore him. The credit of greatness is due to his mother. And the Talmud explains that when he was a baby, his mother would take his cradle and bring it to the base medrash, to the house of study. And because on a daily basis he was exposed to such a holy environment, he turned out to be one of the greatest personalities in Jewish history. So just to say again and again how environment is huge. In fact, one of the Rebbe's 10-point mitzvah campaigns is Bias Mali Sfarim, a house full of books. There's Torah study, that's one thing. And then there's another thing, a totally another thing, and that is a house full of books. And I read a very interesting study. It was quoting from the U.S. Department of Education. They did a study on early childhood, and they found that children who had at least 50 books in their house did five points better in many areas than all the other children. And students who had at least 100 books in their house did even better by five points than the 50 book students. And it was nothing to do with whether or not their parents read to them. That was not part of the equation. It was simply having the books in the house. So environment is huge. And for this guy, he's in a very bad environment on a, on a daily basis, all day long. Every day, all day long, he is surrounded by unkosher, unholy, unwholesome sights. So what do you expect of him? His place, his physical environment causes him to sin. And whenever he is not thus engaged, he is of those who sit at the street corner. So most of the day he's walking around, he's making business deals. But then part of the day he's not. So what is he doing when he's not? He's sitting around the street corners, idly watching, having nonsense conversations. Now he's even in a worse position than position one. Position one is he's in a bad environment, but he's working. The Talmud has an expression, he's busy with his work. Somebody who's busy with their work is less likely to be caught up in nonsense because he's occupied. But somebody who is not busy with their work and sitting and looking around and talking nonsense and hanging out with bad friends, they're even in a more compromised position. In fact, this is really interesting. In the Laws of Marriage, Maimonides writes that a woman whose husband is very, very wealthy, so she has many mates, must still be engaged in some level of work. Because he said, Habatala mevia lide zima. Idleness leads to lewdness. She may not sit idle. And later on he says that if the husband takes a vow forbidding his wife from working, 
he needs to divorce her and pay her the money due by virtue, virtue of her ketubah. Because idleness leads to lewdness and he's compromising her moral integrity. And so instead of allowing her to fall down that path, as soon as he takes such a vow, he has to divorce her and give her the money. So we look at this person who's in an unwholesome environment. Okay, stage one, he's working, but parts of the day he's not working. He's idle. He's sitting around. He's staring. He's in a very compromised position. Thus, his eyes see all sorts of temptation. And what the eyes see, the heart desires. So because his eyes see all these bad stuff, now his heart is on fire. First, it was just he's in a bad environment. But why is, what's so bad about the bad environment is that his eyes see it. Our Chachamim called the eyes like the spies. They're looking around, touring to see what there is. And then the eye see and the heart desires. That's what the Torah says when it says, You shall not stray after your hearts and after your eyes. Your eyes see, your hearts want. Imagine you bring home like... Five packs of candy, three packs of danishes. You put it on the kitchen table and you tell the kids you can't have it. You are in for a major fight. If they're going to see it, they're going to want it. Stage one is you must not look. Because if you look at things that you should not desire, you will end up desiring them. In fact, there is a study about what kind of snacks people have on their counter is about how much they weigh. So people who have fruits on their counter supposedly weigh about 13 pounds less than people who do not have healthy snacking options in sight. And people who have cereal boxes on their counter weigh about 20 pounds more than other people. And those with soda on their counter weigh like 25 pounds more. The point is just having it in your environment within your sight makes you want to have those things. This is a very Jewish idea. I don't know how much the world is involved with this kind of idea of watching our eyes, but Judaism expects us to be mindful of the things that we see, to guard our eyes. We are not meant to be looking around everywhere. Okay, up until now, we were talking about physical space. Now we're gonna look at the spiritual place of this sinful person. What are his challenges that are causing him to sin on an everyday basis? Additionally, it may be his spiritual place, the nature of his evil impulse that leads him to sin. His evil nature burns like a baker's fiery oven, which is heated with greater frequency and intensity than a domestic oven. As it is written in Hesheia, it burns like a flaming fire. So look at his spiritual space right now. He might have a much more passionate, fiery, evil inclination. Let's look at the commercial oven versus the residential oven. The commercial oven, first of all, is burning more often. And it's also burning with a much greater intensity. You cannot judge his person because you don't know what kind of struggles he has inside. You don't know what his passions and his desires are like. The Talmud tells a story of Rav Ashi, one of the greatest sages of the Talmud was giving a lecture. And one day he ended off his lecture by saying, tomorrow we will begin our lecture with the treatment of the three kings. The three kings were three Jewish kings who were of terrible moral character. Menashe, 
Achav and Yeravam, who were our colleagues in Torah study. That night he goes to sleep and he has a dream. Who comes to him in his dream? Menashe, the king of Judea. And he said, you dare call us your colleagues in Torah study? Let me ask you a question. Where do you start cutting the bread when you make the bracha hamotzi? And he said, I don't know. And he said, you don't know where to start cutting the bread when you make the bracha hamotzi and you dare call me your colleague? He said, okay, tell me where you start cutting the bread. And tomorrow when I give my lecture, and it was festival time, so it was a very well attended lecture, I will quote the teaching in your name. And so he said, okay, you start cutting the bread from where the bread begins to crust over in baking. Remember in the olden days, they didn't have the same even heating in their ovens. So some parts of the bread might have been more doughy and other than were more well-baked. So they would start cutting the bread in a place where it was well-baked. And even today, people make a little mark on their challah to show this is where I'm going to start cutting, you know, because this is where it's well-baked. So the next day, Rav Ashi comes to the lecture hall and he teaches the teaching from King Menashe. And he says, today we're going to talk about the three kings who are our teachers in Torah study. But yet they forfeited their share in the world to come. In his dream with King Menashe, Rav Ashi asked him, I don't understand. If you were so great, how did you serve idols? And he said, listen to me. If you lived in my time, you would have lifted the hems of your robes and chased after me to serve idols. You can't judge. It was a different time. There were different passions. And King Menashe himself must have been consumed with passion. So here is somebody who is in a very compromised spiritual space. Not only is he exposed to an unwholesome environment, but he has a very passionate nature that's always craving to do bad things. In contrast to the person that's spiritually well-developed, Masha Enkain, Misha Heilich Bashuk Ma'at, it is different, however, with him who goes about but a little in the marketplace. And most of the day, he is at home rather than at the street corners. And therefore, he encounters less temptation. How is he in a position to judge? What makes it okay for him to judge? He doesn't have the same tests as the sinful person. The Dubno Magid was a famous preacher who came up with such beautiful Mishalim. And he was very well liked by the Vilna Gaon the great Jewish sage. And so one time the Vilna Gaon said to the Dubno Magad, you walk around and you give Musar, constructive moral criticism to so many people, give me Musar. Immediately he was ill at ease to give Musar to the great Gaon. He stopped and then he said, Rabbi, you sit at home all day with your shutters so tightly closed that the sunlight can hardly enter. Is it any wonder that you are a tzaddik? Maybe if you were in the marketplace all day, you wouldn't be such a tzaddik. And the Vilna Ga'ain took his words to heart. So this just underscores the point that you cannot judge somebody who has a different set of tests, physical tests and spiritual tests. You could say, wait one second, I don't sit at home all day. I don't keep my shutters closed. In fact, I'm in the same line of work as that guy is. We're both in the marketplace all day, and nevertheless, I am moral and he is immoral. 
So the Altar will address that. Even you, who are in the same position as him physically, still cannot judge him. Not even if he goes about the marketplace all day, so his physical place is the same as that of the Kalshiva column, yet it may be that his spiritual place is different and he is not so passionate by nature and is therefore not as greatly tempted by the sights of the marketplace. It's not a reason to judge. You're in the same line of work, but you have a totally different nature. Ki ein nefesh. For the evil impulse is not the same in everyone. One person's nature may be more passionate and the others less so, as explained elsewhere. In Lakote Tara and Hasidic discourse, the Alter Rebbe explains that different people's animal souls are, condi- are compared to different kinds of animals. One person might have an animal soul that's like an ox, that is temperamental and angry and gores easily. And then another person might have an animal soul that's like a sheep that never gets angry. In fact, not only does it not get angry, but it cries pitifully. And yet, its temptation is pleasure. It's a pleasure seeker. So everybody has their own set of challenges. In fact, when the, when the Mishnah says, Ezehu gibar ha-kaivish es yitzrei, who is strong, he who conquers his evil inclination, the Baal Shem Tov comments, it doesn't say the evil inclination. It says his evil inclination. Because your fellow's evil inclination may not pose any challenge to you. You may not face the same challenges that he faces. It's specifically your in- evil inclination that if you conquer it, you are strong. For, for you, his temptations are nothing. Don't think of yourself as so strong just because you can overcome the test that he keeps constantly falling for. Okay, so let's wrap up this section and then we're going to move up to the next section. Up until now, we said that you cannot judge the sinful person. Yes, he's very sinful, but let's take the advice from the sages. Don't judge your fellow until you've been in his place. His place causes him to sin. There's his physical environment that's unwholesome, unhealthy, unkosher. His eyes are constantly seeing things that he shouldn't, that provoke him to temptation. And then his spiritual place, that he has a much more passionate, fiery nature, and it's much harder for him to rein himself in. So having said all of that, now we can say, okay, so the sinful person is not guilty, right? Maybe we should call him a tzaddik. Why are we calling him a rasha? He's a tzaddik. What did he do wrong? He has so much temptation. The altar was going to say, no, 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 no. We can't judge him, but nevertheless, there is no justifications for his bad behavior. We cannot judge but he is not justified. And now he's going to explain to us why. In truth, even he who is extremely passionate by nature and whose livelihood obliges him to sit all day at the street corners, he has no excuse whatsoever for his sins, and he is termed a Rasha Gamor, an ev- utter evildoer. For not having the dread of God before his eyes. Yes, he has formidable challenges, but he still has no excuse because he does not keep the dread of Hashem in front of his eyes. The great sage Rabbi Yechanan ben Zakkai, 
when he was about to pass away, his students said to him, Rabbi, bless us. And he said, May it be the will of Hashem that your fear of heaven should be like the fear of man. And they were very disappointed. They said, Ad Khan, that's it. And he said, Listen, you should know that when a person sins, they say, May no man see me. At least that level of fear of God you should have. I was once listening to a lecture by Rabbi Shays Talbot. He was telling the story where he was sitting in the parking lot and he notices this woman, outrageous, livid, yelling at her child in the car. She's like having a temper tantrum, yelling at her child. All of a sudden, she notices that she's being observed and immediately she stops. Wow, what great impulse control. Well, when you notice that you're being observed, you have great impulse control. This wicked person has a fiery nature. He has crazy impulses. But if he would have the dread of Hashem before his eyes, if he would remember that there is an eye that sees and an ear that hears, he would have been able to rein himself in. For he should have controlled himself and restrained the feeling of desire in his heart because of the fear of God who sees all his actions. So when we say that he has no fear of God in front of his eyes, it's really twofold. No fear of God in front of his eyes, meaning he should have controlled himself where he looked. Again, this is a very Jewish idea, controlling where you look. The Talmud tells a story of two great sages, Rav Aishia and Rav Hanina. They were cobblers. Do you know what kind of marketplace they worked in? A marketplace of prostitutes. These women would come to them for them to make them shoes. And the Talmud says that they never looked at the woman. The woman would look at them and ask them for shoes and they never looked up at the woman. And the women, these low-down women, these prostitutes were so impressed by their piety that when they would swear, they would swear by the lives of the holy sages of the land of Israel. So this is expected of us in Judaism to control our eyes. People think it's just a male thing that only men can look at women, but it actually goes the other way too. Women are not supposed to stare at men. In fact, in, in Shmuel, in the Navi, it's speaking about King Shaul. Before he is the king, he's going to look for his father's donkeys. His father's donkeys are lost. He can't find them. So he's going to seek out the prophet Shmuel. And he asks for directions. He meets some girls that are going to the well. And he asks, is the seer here? And they give him this whole wordy answer. Blah, blah, blah. Go here. And he's doing a sacrifice. Well, on and on and on. Why are they talking so much? So the Midrash in Yalkut Shemaini discusses this. Why are they talking so much? What a wordy, lengthy answer. And one of the suggestions were that Sha'o HaMelech was so handsome that they just wanted to look at him. And Rav Yaisi says, no way. Chas v'shalem. God forbid to degrade these Jewish women and put them in such a category. Because just as it is forbidden for a man to stare at women who are not for him, a woman is not allowed to stare at men who is not for her. So yes, you stare at your husband, you stare at your children, but just to stare at men, that is un immodest behavior. So first of all, the Russia should have controlled where his eyes looked. 
And second of all, even once his fiery nature was provoked, he should have had the fear of God in front of his eyes and he should have had restrained himself seeing that there is seeing conceptually that there is an eye that sees and an ear that hears. This fear of God would have enabled him to overcome his desires despite the difficulties imposed by his surroundings and his nature. For as explained above, the mind has supremacy over the heart by nature of one's birth. It is man's inborn characteristic that his mind be able to master and restrain his heart's desires. This is a principle of Jewish faith. We always have freedom of choice. True, you are in a very compromised position, but every single human being, by virtue of being human, even somebody who is morally bankrupt, has the ability to hold himself in and to control himself because our nature is that our mind rules our heart. And if you look at the words of the Alter Rebbe, he says, he should have controlled and restrained the feeling of desire. Do you see how powerful this is? In a Hasidic discourse, the Alter Rebbe describes that the mind rule our behavior, that's for sure, based on what we choose intellectually, the way we want to behave. Even if our heart wants differently, we can steer our behavior away from our heart and act according to our minds. But will has dominion not only over our behavior, but even over our feelings. If somebody with strong conviction decides not to like something, they can remove their will from it and remove their desire from it. So even if a person is not going to do that, even if a person is not going to take their will away and they're still going to desire it, but everybody has freedom of choice. We always have the power to choose our own behavior. Just by being a human being, we can choose how to behave. And yes, this man had formidable challenges, but he has no excuse because he should have controlled himself and exercised his uniquely human gift of freedom of choice. And he did it. Okay, so now we're going to move to stage two. Yes, he has no excuse. But really, are we any better? Truly, it is a great, fierce struggle to break one's evil nature, which burns like a fiery flame. For the fear of God. Indeed, it is like a veritable test. So let's look at this person who constantly has temptations in a place where most normal people don't have temptations. He's pulled to low down behaviors all the time just to not do any of his corrupt, crazy things. He has to resist such strong forces. Do you know how strong this force is? This force is almost like giving up life itself. That's what he says, like a test of faith. If a person is faced with a test of faith in Hashem, that he has to bow down to an idol, or if he's faced with adultery, or he's faced with murder, any of these three sins, for any other sin, a Jew needs to violate and preserve his life. But for these three sins, for murder, idolatry, adultery, he has to give up his life. 
Could you imagine the superhuman strength it takes to give up life? That's the kind of strength it takes for this sinful person to overcome his evil nature. That is what is demanded of him, and yet we expect it. We don't say, yeah, you can go rob the whole town blind because it's so hard for you. No, you can't. You're having a hard time, you struggle, you struggle intensely, and yet we expect you to do the right thing. Do we work as hard? Therefore, every man ought to weigh and examine his own position according to the standards of his place and reign in divine service. As to whether he serves God in a situation requiring a comparable struggle in a manner commensurate with the dimension of such a fierce battle and test as the Kal Shevakalim faces. If we want to judge fairly, we can't judge just based on superficial criteria. We have to look inside. Do you know what kind of challenges this person faces? Would you be willing to put forth that amount of effort as we're going to move forward we're going to see that you know what we're probably equal to him and actually the more we progress we'll realize that we're worse off so rabbi steinzels tells a story of the great hasidic master rabbi david of lelove who is traveling once through the forest and he hears screaming and he looks up and he sees a young burly man holding an axe over an older man and he's shouting and he says father if it, I did not fear God, I would, and he's, I don't want to say I would, so we're going to say it differently. He said he would chop his head off. Now, Rabbi David thought about this story, and he was very, very moved. Not the way that most people would be moved, by the trauma in the story, but he was moved by this man's fear of God. He said, could you imagine the huge urge for murder that he resisted just for the fear of God I wonder if more pious people use that much strength in serving Hashem so coming up in next class we're going to discuss the instances where people who are excellent in their behavior might have to put forth such a fierce struggle and in fact they don't so they can consider themselves equal to the Kal Shabakalim, the simple person. So let's wrap up what we said until now. And that is that our Chachamim said we need to be humble before every single person. And it wasn't just act humbly. It means truly you need to be humble. How do we come to such a level of humility? Think about what they told us. Don't judge another person until you're in his place. There are two places to consider. The physical place, the environment that he is exposed to on a daily basis, and his spiritual place, the inner struggle that he has, the fierce temptations, his burning, passionate, evil nature. Now, even though he has these kind of tests, nevertheless, it does not exonerate him from his bad behavior because he should have controlled himself due to the fear of Hashem in front of his eyes. He should have exercised that unique human power of freedom of choice using the mind to rule over the heart. Now, while he is not excused for his behavior, we have to understand that it is a very hard struggle to do what he has to do. And we need to ask ourselves, do we put forth that level of struggle in serving Hashem? So that's where we got up until now. And I'm opening for class 
discussion and questions. Everybody's on mute, so if you have a question, please unmute yourself. Shirley, hi! Hi. <laughs> I've got too many questions, so I will try very hard to just pick one. I'm just, and I'm wondering, I've always wondered, first of all, like, this class was amazing, and the last one even more, like, amazing. Anyway, so what about people that are, let's say, on drugs or mental illness? How do we, like, how does Hashem judge them? Like, I mean, they, they're completely unaware of what they're doing. So, like, how does that work? Right. So somebody who is, has mental illness or is on drugs... Is somebody who no because, longer... Because the drugs they did on their own, and that was their freedom of choice, you know? But then it, it brought on the mel- mental illness. A hundred, so. a hundred percent. So almost every person has freedom of choice. The Alter Rebbe previously in Tanya spoke about one category of person who almost has no freedom of choice anymore, and that was the Russia Virale, the evil person who it's bad to him, meaning... That just like there is the, the tzaddik who chased out his evil nature, there is the wicked person who you cannot chase out your divine soul, but his divine soul now hovers over him and does not pervade him anymore. He doesn't even have regrets. That person almost doesn't have freedom of choice. He is a very rare person. It's like you said, the person chose to take drugs, but then at a certain point, they lose their freedom of choice. Their loss of freedom of choice at least for the Rasha Gamor, how the Rambam speaks about Pare, for example, Paro, he lost his freedom of choice. When Hashem said, I will harden his heart, it was because at that point, he removed freedom of choice from him. His loss of freedom of choice was his punishment. And yet, Maimonides says that even he could have pressed forward and done Teshuvah. So... Even somebody who, for all practical purposes, doesn't have freedom of choice, first of all, it depends. They might be really, really ill. At that point, they're considered an anus, somebody who's forced. And the rule is, anus rachamana patre. Somebody who is forced, Hashem exempts him. But then there are people, though that category is very, very narrow, much more narrow than we are willing to admit. Because even those people who seem to have lost their freedom of choice have some level within themselves that they can grab on and retake control in their life. That may be just as far as reaching out to somebody else to help them. But almost every single person, except for people who truly are indeed sick, has some level of freedom of choice. There are some people that it says that they're not, they're not aided anymore. Hashem will not help them due to Shuva. But if they press forward and do, because everybody else who wants to do teshuva, the rule is habalatayher, messiah I say, whoever comes to purify himself, they are granted assistance from heaven. You just try and Hashem will help you. There is a narrow group of people where they've acted so poorly, they misuse their freedom of choice again and again. Hashem says, I'm not helping you. But even that kind of person can press forward anyway and do teshuva. So then, pardon me, what about people, let's say, with like, you know, different conditions like autism, like autism, or you know, what I mean, like they could it be that maybe if their past life Hashem took away their freedom, and in this life they don't have it, or how does it work? I'm I'm not qualified to answer that question. I really don't know the answer. But what I could say is that somebody who suffers from mental illness is a person who's considered anus forced. They are not they are not held accountable in that way. Gotcha. Wow. It goes very deep because then there's also, you know, I've heard that we come with challenges based on our DNA. 
And we can literally come here with, let's say, a person has a challenge with drugs, with alcohol, with whatever it may be nowadays, that it's their ancestors karmically that what they've done and it transfers it down to the kids. So then why would that kid have to deal with somebody else's transgression unless, I would think, Hashem would put them in that position because they themselves did something to be put, I know this is getting complicated, in that place where they would be taking on the transgression of their ancestors. Did that make any sense? So, I hope it did. So, so listen. In the daily Tanya, not what we're studying here, but further on in Tanya, recently the Altar of was talking about the saying of our sages, that anybody who gets angry, it is as though he worshipped idols. And he examines that. And he says like this, you have to understand that even if somebody said something mean to you, for example, he gives the example of Shimi ben Gera, who was cursing King David during the rebellion. He exercised freedom of choice to choose poorly. That's his part of the equation. Then there's King David's part of the equation. His part of the equation is, okay, he was the messenger, but this was meant to happen to him. And therefore, he didn't get angry at Shimi because Hashem has many messengers. It anyway would have happened. Shimi is accountable. Shimi will get punished. But King David doesn't get angry because King David recognizes that this was a challenge that came to him from Hashem. And so when you're saying like trauma is passed on through DNA, that may be true. But this was the package that Hashem chose for this person. And to blame his ancestors would be ridiculous because it would have happened to him anyway, whether or not his ancestors had made those poor choices. Except for, of course, the original poor choice of eating from the tree of knowledge. We're all, we're all paying for that, but obviously that was Hashem's plan. Yes, we could blame Adam and Chava, but at the end of the day, this was Hashem's plan for the human journey. Gotcha. So it's, there's no coincidence, and it's, it's, it's there for them to go through. That's right. Hand chosen wow. by Hashem. No matter how many players there are in that equation, it was hand chosen, packaged for them by Hashem. Yeah, I would think because Hashem is just, Hashem is kind, everything is for our benefit. There is no real unfair circumstances in life then, right? Right. Wow. It's one thing to okay. say, and it's another thing to really own it and, and understand that deeply. I got you. And we're not, pardon me, I'm sorry, last question. And we're not, because I always tell this to people and they laugh at me and I'm just going, even if the person's a sinner, how do we know that it's not your actual test to not judge that person? That's their test. Mind your own business. Because I see people like really stoning people emotionally, you know, because they don't fall in the same category of observance because they've done drugs. They've done, cause I, I'm saying this because I work with a lot of people on the streets. I, I'm helping them out. And I see it, or like I see Jewish people who, for example, ran away from their community because let's say they didn't fit in, they were gay, they were something. And I'm going, but okay, we know that it's not right to be gay, but that's their challenge. You judging them is, a, I think, a bigger sin. That's You don't know what it's like to not be able to love. You don't know what it's like to be homeless. You don't know what it's like to have a drug addiction from a young age. We don't know that. So how dare you judge this person? Right. So we are not allowed. This no, that's exactly that? what we're learning. We are not never allowed to judge. There is the previous Rebbe tells a story of a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shmuel Elia of Kalisk. His first private audience with the Alter Rebbe, he asked him a lot of questions in serving Hashem. And one of the things that the Alter Rebbe said to him was this teaching, Vehave, and truly be humble before every person, even the greatest sinner. 
Do you know he did not go back into a private audience with the Alter Rebbe for 20 years? Because he felt like as much as he desired to go back into the Alter Rebbe, he cannot go in until he truly owned this and made it a part of who he was. And it took him 20 years to feel essentially humble before each and every human being. 20 years of a chassid of his stature. We can imagine it's not a simple thing. No, it's not. We have so much imperfection, you know? Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Hashem knows. 